Section 18 of Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jersey City Frankie. Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 1, by Julian Hawthorne, Editor. Section 18, Wyland's Madness, Part 3, by Charles Brockton Brown. It may be supposed that this disappointment affected me in a very different manner. I turned aside my head to conceal my tears. I fled into solitude to give vent to my reproaches without interruption or restraint. My heart was ready to burst with indignation and grief. Playl was not the only object of my keen but unjust upbriding. Deeply did I execrate my own folly. Thus fallen into ruins was the gay fabric which I had reared. Thus had my golden vision melted into air. How fondly did I dream that Pleyel was a lover! If he were, would he have suffered any obstacle to hinder his coming? Blind and infatuated man, I exclaimed, thou sportest with happiness. The good that is offered thee, thou hast the insolence and folly to refuse. Well, I will henceforth entrust my felicity to no one's keeping but my own. The first agonies of this disappointment would not allow me to be reasonable or just. Every ground on which I had built the persuasion that Pleyel was not unimpressed in my favor appeared to vanish. It seemed as if he had been misled into this opinion by the most palpable illusions. I made some trifling excuse and returned much earlier than I expected to my own house. I retired early to my chamber without designing to sleep. I placed myself at a window and gave the reins to reflection. The hateful and degrading impulses which said lately controlled me were in some degree removed. New dejection succeeded. But it was now produced by contemplating my late behavior. Surely that passion is worthy to be abhorred, which obscures our understanding and urges us to commission of injustice. What right had I to expect his attendance? Had I not demeaned myself like one indifferent to his happiness, and as having bestowed my regards upon another? His absence might be prompted by the love which I considered his absence as a proof that he wanted. He came not because of the sight of me, the spectacle of my coldness or aversion contributed to his despair. Why should I prolong my hypocrisy or silence, his misery as well as my own? Why not deal with him explicitly and assure him of the truth? You will hardly believe that in obedience to this suggestion I rose for the purpose of ordering a light, that I might instantly make this confession in a letter. A second thought showed me the rashness of this scheme, and I wondered by what infirmity of mind I could be betrayed into a momentary approbation of it. I saw with the utmost clearness that a confession like that would be the most remediless and unpardonable outrage upon the dignity of my sex, and utterly unworthy of that passion which controlled me. I resumed my seat and my musing, to account for the absence of Pleyel, became once more the scope of my conjectures. How many incidents might occur to raise insuperable impediment in his way? When I was a child, a scheme of pleasure in which he and his sister were parties, had been in like manner frustrated by his absence, but his absence in that instance had been occasioned by his falling from a boat into the river, in consequence of which he had run the most imminent hazard of being drowned. Here was a second disappointment endured by the same persons, and produced by his failure. Might it not originate in the same cause? Had he not designed to cross the river that morning to make some necessary purchases in New Jersey? He had preconcerted to return to his own house to dinner. Perhaps some disaster had befallen him. Experience had taught me the insecurity of a canoe, and that was the only kind of boat which Pleyel used. I was, likewise, actuated by an hereditary dread of water, 
These circumstances combined to bestow considerable plausibility on this conjecture. But the consternation with which I began to be seized was allayed by reflecting that, if this disaster had happened, my brother would have received the speediest information of it. The consolation which this idea imparted was ravished from me by a new thought. This disaster might have happened, and his family not be apprised of it. The first intelligence of his fate may be communicated by the livid corpse, which the tide may cast many days hence upon the shore. Thus I was distressed by opposite conjectures. Thus was I tormented by phantoms of my own creation. It was not always thus. I can ascertain the date when my mind became the victim of this imbecility. Perhaps it was coeval with the inroad of a fatal passion, a passion that will never rank me in the number of its eulogies. It was alone sufficient to exterminate of my peace. It was itself a plenteous source of calamity, and needed not the concurrence of other evils to make way the attractions of existence, and did for me an untimely grave. The state of my mind naturally introduced a train of reflections upon the dangers and cares which inevitably beset a human being. By no violent transition was I led to ponder on the turbulent life and mysterious end of my father. I cherished with the utmost veneration the memory of this man, and every relic connected with his fate was preserved with the most scrupulous care. Among these was to be numbered a manuscript containing memoirs of his own life. The narrative was by no means recommended by its eloquence, but neither did it all its value flow from my relationship to the author. Its style had an unaffected and picturesque simplicity. The great variety and circumstantial display of the incidents, together with their intrinsic importance as descriptive of human manners and passions, made it the most useful book in my collection. It was late, but being sensible of no inclination to sleep, I resolved to betake myself of the perusal of it. To do this, it was requisite to procure a light. The girl had long since retired to her chamber. It was therefore proper to wait upon myself. A lamp and the means of lighting it were only to be found in the kitchen. Thither I resolved forthwith to repair, but the light was of use merely to enable me to read the book. I knew the shelf and the spot where it stood. Whether I took down the book or prepared the lamp in the first place appeared to be a matter of no moment. The latter was preferred, and leaving my seat, I approached the closet in which, as I mentioned formerly, my books and papers were deposited. Suddenly, the remembrance of what had lately passed in this closet occurred. Whether midnight was approaching or had passed, I knew not. I was, as then, alone and defenseless. The wind was in that direction in which, aided by the death-like repose of nature, it brought to me the murmuring of the waterfall. This was mingled with the solemn and enchanting sound which a breeze produces among the leaves of pines. The words of that mysterious dialogue, their fearful import, and the wild excess to which I was transported by my terrors, filled my imagination anew. My steps faltered, and I stood a moment to recover myself. I prevailed on myself at length to move towards the closet. I touched the lock, but my fingers were powerless. I was visited afresh by unconquerable apprehensions. A sort of belief darted into my mind that some being was concealed within whose purposes were evil. I began to contend with those fears when it occurred to me that I might, without impropriety, go for a lamp, previously to opening the closet. I receded a few steps, but before I reached the chamber door my thoughts took a new direction. Motion seemed to produce a mechanical influence upon me. I was ashamed of my weakness. Besides, what aid could be afforded me by a lamp? My fears had pictured to themselves no precise object. It would be difficult to depict in words the ingredients and hues of that phantom which haunted me. A hand invisible, and of patronatural strength, lifted by human passions, and selecting my life for its aim, 
were parts of this terrific image. All places were alike accessible to this foe, or if his empire were restricted by local bounds, those bounds were utterly inscrutable by me. But had I not been told by someone in league with this enemy that every place but the recesses in the bank was exempt from danger? I returned to the closet, and once more put my hand upon the lock. Oh, may my ears lose their sensibility, ere they be again assailed by a shriek so terrible. Not merely my understanding was subdued by the sound, it acted on my nerves like an edge of steel. It appeared to cut asunder the fibers of my brain and rack every joint with agony. The cry, loud and piercing as it was, was nevertheless human. No articulation was ever more distinct. The breath which accompanied it did not fan my hair, yet did every circumstance combine to persuade me that the lips which uttered it touched my very shoulder. Hold, hold, were the words of this tremendous prohibition, in whose tone the whole soul seemed to be wrapped up and every energy converted into eagerness and terror. Shuddering, I dashed myself against the wall, and by the same involuntary impulse, turned my face backwards to examine the mysterious monitor. The moonlight streamed into each window, and every corner of the room was conspicuous, and yet I beheld nothing. The interval was too brief to be artificially measured between the utterance of these words and my scrutiny directed to the quarter whence they came. Yet if a human being had been there, could he fail to have been visible? Which of my senses was the prey of a fatal illusion? The shock which the sound produced was still felt in every part of my frame. The sound, therefore, could not but be a genuine commotion. But that I had heard it was not more true than that the being who uttered it was stationed at my right ear, yet my attendant was invisible. I cannot describe the state of my thoughts at that moment. Surprise had mastered my faculties. My frame shook, and the vital current was congealed. I was conscious only of the vehemence of my sensations. This condition could not but be lasting. Like a tide which suddenly mounts to an overwhelming height and then gradually subsides, my confusion slowly gave place to order, and my tumults to a calm. I was able to deliberate and move. I resumed my feet and advanced into the midst of the room. Upward and beyond, and on each side, I threw penetrating glances. I was not satisfied with one examination. He that hitherto refused to be seen might change his purpose, and on the next survey be clearly distinguishable. Solitude imposes least restraint upon the fancy. Dark is less fertile of images than the feeble luster of the moon. I was alone, and the walls were checkered by shadowy forms. As the moon passed behind a cloud and emerged, these shadows seemed to be endowed with life and to move. The apartment was open to the breeze, and the curtain was occasionally blown from its ordinary position. This motion was not unaccompanied with sound. I failed not to snatch a look and to listen when this motion and this sound occurred. My belief that my monitor was posted near was strong and instantly converted these appearances to tokens of his presence, and yet I could discern nothing. When my thoughts were at length permitted to revert to the past, the first idea that occurred was the resemblance between the words of the voice which I had just heard and those which had terminated my dream in the summer-house. There are means by which we are able to distinguish a substance from a shadow, a reality from a phantom of a dream. The pit, my brother beckoning me forward, the seizure of my arm, and the voice behind were surely imaginary. That these incidents were fashioned in my sleep is supported by the same indoubtable evidence that compels me to believe myself awake at present. Yet the words and the voice were the same. Then by some inexplicable contrivance I was aware of the danger, while my actions and sensations were those of one wholly unacquainted with it.
now was it not equally true that my actions and persuasions were at war had not the belief that evil lurked in the closet gained admittance and had not my actions betokened an unwarranted security to obviate the effects of my infatuation the same means had been used in my dream he that tempted me to my destruction was my brother death was ambushed in my path from what evil was i now rescued what minister or implement of ill was shut up in this recess who was it whose suffocating grasp I was to feel should I dare to enter? What monstrous conception is this? My brother? No. Protection and not injury is his province. A strange and terrible chimera. Yet it would not be suddenly dismissed. It was surely no vulgar agency that gave this form to my fears. He to whom all parts of time are equally present, whom no contingency approaches, was the author of that spell which now seized upon me. Life was dear to me. No consideration was present that enjoined me to relinquish it. Sacred duty combined with every spontaneous sentiment to endear to me my being. Should I not shudder when my being was endangered? But what emotion should possess me when the arm lifted against me was violence? Ideas exist in our mind can be accounted for by no established laws. Why did I dream that my brother was my foe? Why, but because an omen of my fate was ordained to be communicated? Yet what salutary end did it serve? Did it arm me with caution to elude or fortitude to bear the evils to which I was reserved? My present thoughts were, no doubt, in indebted for their hue to the similitude existing between these incidents and those of my dream. Surely it was frenzy that dictated my need. That a ruffian was hidden in the closet was an idea that the genuine tendency of which was to urge me to flight. Such had been the effect formerly produced. Had my mind been simply occupied with this thought at present, no doubt the same impulse would have been experienced, but now it was my brother whom I was irresistibly persuaded to regard as the contriver of the, that ill of which I had been forewarned. This persuasion did not extenuate my fears or my danger. Why, then, did I again approach the closet and withdraw the bolt? My resolution was instantly conceived and executed without faltering. The door was formed of light materials, the lock of simple structure easily forewent its hold. It opened into the room and commonly moved upon its hinges after being unfastened without any effort of mind. This effort, however, was bestowed upon the present occasion. It was my purpose to open it with the quickness, but the exertion which I made was ineffectual. It refused to open. At another time, this circumstance would not have looked with a face of mystery. I should have supposed some casual obstruction and repeated my efforts to surmount it. But now, my mind was accessible to no conjecture but one. The door was hindered from opening by human force. Surely, here was a new cause for affright. This was confirmation proper to decide my conduct. Now was all ground of hesitation taken away. What could be supposed but that I deserted the chamber of the house, that I at least endeavored no longer to withdraw the door? Have I not said that my actions were directed by frenzy? My reason had forborne, for a time, to suggest or to sway my resolves. I reiterated my endeavors. I exerted all my force to overcome the obstacle, but in vain. The strength that was exerted to keep it shut was superior to mine. A casual observer might perhaps applaud the audaciousness of this conduct once, but from a habitual defiance of danger could my perseverance arise. I have already assigned, as distinctly as I am able, the cause of it, the frantic conception that my brother was within, that the resistance made to my design was exerted by him, had rooted itself in my mind. You will comprehend the height of this infatuation when I tell you that, finding all my exertions vain, I betook myself to exclamations. Surely I was utterly bereft of understanding. Now I had arrived at the crisis of my fate. 
Oh, hinder not the door to open, I exclaimed in a tone that has less of fear than the grief in it. I know you well. Come forth. But Hammy, not me. I beseech you, come forth. I had taken my hand from the lock and removed to a small distance from the door. I had scarcely uttered these words when the door swung upon its hinges and displayed to my view the interior of the closet. Whoever was within was shrouded in darkness. A few seconds passed without interruption of the silence. I knew not what to expect or to fear. My eyes would not stray from the recess. Presently a deep sigh was heard. The quarter from which it came heightened the eagerness of my gaze. Someone approached from the farther end. I quickly perceived the outlines of a human figure. Its steps were irresolute and slow. I recoiled as it advanced. But coming at length within the verge of the room, his form was clearly distinguishable. I had prefigured to myself a very different personage. The face that presented itself was the last that I should desire to meet at an hour and in a place like this. My wonder was stifled by my fears. Assassins had lurked in this recess. Some divine voice warned me of a danger that at this moment awaited me. I had spurned the intimation and challenged my adversary. I recalled the mysterious countenance and dubious character of Carwin. What motive but atrocious ones could guide his steps hither? I was alone. My habit suited the hour and the place, and the warmth of the season. All succor was remote. He had placed himself between me and the door. My frame shook with the vehemence of my apprehensions. I was not wholly lost to myself. I vigilantly marked his demeanor. His looks were grave, but not without perturbation. What species of iniquitude it betrayed the light was not strong enough to enable me to discover. He stood still, but his eyes wandered from one object to another. When those powerful organs were fixed upon me, I shrunk into myself. At length he broke the silence. Earnestness and not embarrassment was in his tone. He advanced close to me while he spoke. What voice was that which lately addressed you? He paused for an answer, but observing my trepidation, he resumed with undiminished solemnity. Be not terrified. Whoever he was, he has done you an important service. I need not ask you if it were the voice of a companion. That sound was beyond the compass of human organs. The knowledge that enabled him to tell you who was in the closet was obtained by incomprehensible means. You knew that Carwin was there. Were you not appraised of his intents? The same power could impart the one as well as the other. Yet knowing these, you persisted, audacious girl. But perhaps you confided in his guardianship. Your confidence was just. With succor like this at hand, you may safely defy me. He is my eternal foe, the baffler of my best concerted schemes. Twice have you been saved by his accursed interposition. But from him I should no longer ere now have borne away the spoils of your honor. He looked at me with greater steadfastness than before. I became every moment more anxious for my safety. It was with difficulty I stammered out an entreaty that he would instantly depart, or suffer me to do so. He paid no regard to my request, but proceeded in a more impassioned manner. What is it you fear? Have I not told you you are safe? Has not one in whom you more reasonably place trust assured you of it? Even if I execute my purpose, what injury is done? Your prejudice will call it by that name, but it merits it not. I was impelled by a sentiment that does you honor, a sentiment that would sanctify my deed. 
but whoever it be, you are safe. Be this chimera still worshipped, I will do nothing to pollute it. There he stopped. The accents and gestures of this man left me drained of all courage. Surely, on no other occasion should I have been thus pusillanimous. My state I regarded as a hopeless one. I was wholly at the mercy of this being. Whichever way I turned, I saw no avenue by which I might escape. The resources of my personal strength, my ingenuity, and my eloquence, I estimated at nothing. The dignity of virtue and the force of truth I had been accustomed to celebrate and had frequently vaunted of the conquests which I should make with their assistance, I used to suppose that certain evils could never befall a being in possession of a sound mind, that true virtue supplies us with energy which vice can never resist, that it was always in our power to obstruct by his own death the designs of an enemy who aimed at less than our life. How was it that a sentiment like despair had now invaded me? and that I trusted to the protection of chance, or to the pity of my persecutor. His words imparted some notion of my injury, which he had meditated. He talked of obstacles that he had risen in his way. He had relinquished his design. These sources supplied me with slender consolation. There was no security but in his absence. When I looked at myself, when I reflected on the hour and the place, I was overpowered by horror and dejection. He was silent useful and inattentive to my situation, yet made no motion to depart. I was silent in my turn. What could I say? I was confident that reason in this contest would be important. I must owe my safety to his own suggestions. Whatever purpose brought him hither, he had changed it. Why, then, did he remain? His resolutions might fluctuate, and the pause of a few minutes restored to him his first resolutions. Yet was not this man whom we had treated with unwearied kindness? whose society was endeared to us by his intellectual elevation and accomplishments, who had a thousand times expatiated on the usefulness and beauty of virtue? Why should such a one be dreaded? If I could have forgotten the circumstances in which our interview had taken place, I might have treated his words as jests. Presently he resumed. Fear not. The space that serves us is small, and all visible succor is distant. You believe yourself completely in my power, that you stand upon the brink of ruin. Such are your groundless fears. I cannot lift a finger to hurt you. Easier would it be to stop the moon in her course than to injure you. The power that protects you would crumble my sinews and reduce me to a heap of ashes in a moment, if I were to harbor a thought of hostility to your safety. Thus appearances at length solved, little did I expect that they originated hence. What a portion is assigned to you, scanned by the eyes of this intelligence, your path will be without pits to swallow or snares to entangle you. Environed by the arms of this protection, all artifices will be frustrated and all malice repelled. Here succeeded a new pause. I was still observant of every gesture and look. The tranquil solemnity that had lately possessed his countenance gave way to a new expression. All now was trepidation and anxiety. I must be gone, he said in a faltering accent. Why do I linger here? I will not ask your forgiveness. I see that your terrors are invincible. Your pardon will be extorted by fear and not dictated by compassion. I must fly from you forever. He that could plot against your honor must expect from you and your friends persecution and death. I must doom myself to endless exile. Saying this, he hastily left the room. I listened while he descended the stairs and, unbolting the outer door, went forth. I did not follow him with my eyes, as the moonlight would have enabled me to do. 
Relieved by his absence and exhausted by the conflict of my fears, I threw myself on a chair and resigned myself to those bewildering ideas which incidents like those could not fail to produce. Order could not readily be introduced into my thoughts. The voice still rung in my ears. Every accent that was uttered by Carwin was fresh in my remembrance. His unwelcome reproach, the recognition of his person, his hasty departure, produced a complex impression on my mind which no words can delineate. I strove to give a slower motion to my thoughts and to regulate a confusion which became painful. But my efforts were nugatory. I covered my eyes with my hand and sat, I know not how long, without power to arrange or utter my conceptions. I had remained for hours, as I believed, in absolute solitude. No thought of personal danger had molested my tranquillity. I made no preparation for defense. What was it that suggested the design of perusing my father's manuscript? If instead of this I had retired to bed and to sleep, to what fate might I not have been reserved? The ruffian, who must almost have suppressed his breathings to screen himself from discovery, would have noticed the signal, and I should have awakened only to perish with the fright and to abhor myself. Could I have remained unconscious of my danger? Could I have tranquilly slept in the midst of so deadly a snare? And who was he that threatened to destroy me? By what means could he hide himself in his closet? Surely he is gifted with supernatural power. Such is the enemy of whose attempts I was forewarned. Daily I had seen him and conversed with him. Nothing could be discerned through the impenetrable veil of his duplicity. When busied in conjectures as to the author of the evil that was threatened, my mind did not light for a moment upon his image. Yet was he not avowed himself my enemy? Why should he be here if he had not meditated evil? He confesses that this has been his second attempt. What was the scene of his former conspiracy? Was it not he whose whispers betrayed him? Am I deceived? Or was there not a faint resemblance between the voice of this man and that which talked of grasping my throat and extinguishing my life in a moment? Then he had a colleague in his crime. Now he is alone. Then death was the scope of his thoughts. Now an injury unspeakably more dreadful. How thankful should I be to the power that has interposed to save me? That power is invisible. It is subject to the cognizance of one of my senses. What are the means that will inform me of what nature it is? He has set himself to counterwork the machinations of this man who had menaced destruction to all that is dear to me and whose coming had surmounted every human impediment. There was none to rescue me from his grasp. My rashness even hastened the completion of his scheme and precluded him from benefits of deliberation. I had robbed him of the power to repent and forbear. Had I been appraised of the danger, I should have regarded my conduct as the means of rendering my escape from it impossible. Such likewise seems to have been the fears of my invisible protector. Else why that startling entreaty to refrain from opening the closet? By what inexplicable infatuations was I compelled to proceed? Surely, said I, there is omnipotence in the cause that changed the views of a man like Carwin. The divinity that shielded me from his attempts will take suitable care of my future safety. Thus, to yield to my fears is to deserve that they should be real. Scarcely had I uttered these words when my attention was startled by the sound of footsteps. They denoted someone stepping into the piazza in front of my house. My newborn confidence was extinguished in a moment. Carwin, I thought, 
had repented his departure and was hastily returning. The possibility that his return was prompted by intentions consistent with my safety found no place in my mind. Images of violation and murder assailed me anew, and the terrors which succeeded almost incapacitated me from taking any measure for my defense. It was an impulse of which I was scarcely conscious that made me fasten the lock and draw the bolts of my chamber door. Having done this, I threw myself on a seat, for I trembled to a degree which disabled me from standing, and my soul was so perfectly absorbed in the act of listening that almost the vital motions were stopped. The door below creaked on its hinges. It was not again thrust to, but appeared to remain open. Footsteps entered, traversed the entry, and began to mount the stairs. How I detested the folly of not pursuing the man when he withdrew and bolting after him the outer door! Might he not conceive this omission to be a proof that my angel had deserted me, and be thereby fortified in guilt? Every step on the stairs which brought him nearer to my chamber added vigor to my desperation. The evil with which I was menaced was to be at any rate eluded. How little did I preconceive the conduct which in an exigence like this I should be prone to adopt! You will suppose that deliberation and despair would have suggested the same course of action, and that I should have unhesitatingly restored to the best means of personal defense within my power. A penknife lay open upon my table. I remembered that it was there, and I seized it. For what purpose you will scarcely inquire. It will be immediately supposed that I meant it for my last refuge, and that, if all other means should fail, I should plunge it into the heart of my ravisher. I have lost all faith in the steadfastness of human resolves. It was thus that in periods of calm I had determined to act. No cowardice had been held by me in greater abhorrence than that which prompted an injured female to destroy not her injurer, ere the injury was perpetrated, but herself, when it was without remedy. Yet now this penknife appeared to me of no other use than to baffle my assailant, and to prevent the crime by destroying myself. To deliberate at such a time was impossible, but among the tumultuous suggestions of the moment, I do not recollect that it once occurred to me to use it as an instrument of direct defense. The steps had now reached the second floor. Every footfall accelerated the completion without augmentating the certainty of evil. The consciousness that the door was fast, now that nothing but that was interposed between me and danger, was the source of some consolation. I cast my eye toward the window. This, likewise, was a new suggestion. If the door should give way, it was my sudden resolution to throw myself from the window. Its height from the ground, which is covered beneath by a brick pavement, would ensure my destruction. But I thought not of that. When, opposite to my door, the footsteps ceased, was he listening? Whether my fears were allayed and my caution were asleep, did he hope to take me by surprise, yet? If so, why did he allow so many noisy signals to betray his approach? Presently the steps were again heard to approach the door. A hand was laid upon the lock, and the latch pulled back. Did he imagine it possible that I should fail to secure the door? A slight effort was made to push it open, as if all boats being withdrawn, a slight effort only was required. I no sooner perceived this man than I moved swiftly toward the window. Carwin's frame might be said to be all muscle. His strength and activity had appeared in various instances to be prodigious. A slight exertion of his force would demolish the door. Would not that exertion be made? Too surely it would. But at the same moment that this obstacle should yield and he should enter the apartment, 
My determination was formed to leap from the window. My senses were still bound to this object. I gazed at the door in momentary expectation that the assault would be made. The pause continued. The person without was irresolute and motionless. Suddenly it occurred to me that Carwin might conceive me to have fled. That I had not betaken myself to flight was indeed the least probable of all conclusions. In this persuasion he must have been confirmed on finding the lower door unfastened and the chamber door locked. Was it no wiser to foster this persuasion? Should I maintain deep silence? This, in addition to other circumstances, might encourage the belief, and he would once more depart. Every new reflection added plausibility to this reasoning. It was presently more strongly enforced when I noticed footsteps withdrawing from the door. The blood once more flowed back into my heart, and a dawn of exultation began to rise. But my joy was short-lived. Instead of descending the stairs, he passed to the door of the opposite chamber, opened it, and having entered, shut it after him with a violence that shook the house. End of section 18. Recorded by Jersey City Frankie.